Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined by your other host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. And yeah, it is. It is. It's most certainly a Friday afternoon. Uh, and we are. We, we've actually been pretty good recently with recording, sort of on time. At least the past two weeks or so, haven't we? We're getting well, at least there. the past week. You, you, <laughs> yeah, I think this is the first time two weeks in a row that we're going on a Friday. Uh, first time in in since the pandemic started or something like that. Uh, okay, well, but as as we be... start new good habits, we also let go of old yeah. good habits, which we shouldn't do. The old good habit is, don't forget two crickets tagline: the smoothest glass of amarula for your mind, the side oh, of Mars. But this side of Mars part is especially good because that came after our episode about why it's a good idea to try and go to Mars, which came Dude, after I completely forgot about why the it's Mars a good bit. idea to try and build pyramids. Uh, that was that was a classic. I think that in many ways set the standard for what this podcast would become, the pyramids <laughs> one. Uh, also because we were, I think, drunk. <laughs> or at least a bit. <laughs> if you take me to court... I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Indeed. Even... Anyway, uh, we we I, I I haven't felt great inspiration for what to talk about today. Gabriel luckily uh, did have some ideas, uh, and the first one we want to talk about is just a little bit of an update of what's going on the uh, as we titled it in our episode, the Inscrutable East, which is uh, the border between. Ukraine, Belarus, and Mother Russia. So, Gabriel, you, you wanted to give everyone some thoughts about uh, what we had said last time. Yeah. So, I mean, two weeks ago, I think we got into a good argument about the the what's going on there and what the merits are. And I enjoyed that. Um, I, it was difficult. It is. It's. It's kind of been the case that since then. I've really seen no arguments about it. Um, I, I, it, it, it sort of, it seems to me that this really is a situation where echo chambers is the right word. Like I often make the complaint that when people talk about echo chambers in regards to South African or American media, they're talking rubbish, right? Because if you ever watch CNN or the Daily Friends show, any of the funnies, they're constantly bringing up clips from Fox News and then making fun of it. <laughs> yes. And if you watch Although, Fox News, they do exactly the same, just with a shoe on the other foot. And in South Africa, there's a there's a lot of that as well. There's a lot of like bringing yeah. the other side out think, and mocking it. I get whipped out in debates about BEE and I get called uh, a, a wonderful person. I always get complimented. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, no, but so, we have debates. Uh, we have we we, we just talk. A, Whereas here, I feel like the two sides don't touch. There, there is also well, I mean, partly it's because I think a lot of the time they're literally in different countries speaking different languages. Uh, yeah. But uh, there is this. The, partly, I think what you described there, you could maybe make the argument that it's also sort of a feature of an echo chamber, more maturely understood, more complexly understood, in that it's uh, what David French calls nut picking, where you don't really go and say, "Oh, this is someone who actually is quite reasonable from the opposite view." Let's let them say their piece. You find the most deranged incomprehensible hysterical lunatic from the other side and you say well look at what they're up to now those people over there 
<laughs> so you, th you think I was being nutpicked? Yes. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Dude, the first time I went on SABC to debate BEE, the host and the other panelists agreed with everything I was saying, and I agreed with pretty much everything they were saying. So have they come out against BEE? <laughs> They did, dude. I did an SABC interview quite a while, a couple of years, a year and a, two years ago. And I said, I can feel a change in the air. Um, and and Franz said, you must remember this moment. He said, it's a. He said this moment reminds me of the time that the Nats uh, uh, sort of were like, we'd rather have, we'd rather let a black person into the team than lose in some sport. I don't know if it is cricket or rugby, uh, but there's there's some famous story from the seventies or whatever. Which... And, which, uh, well, I don't know, France said once you do that, there's no going back. From you can't go, your, then non-racial yeah, ideological. Gonna get yes, your ideological racist prison is shattered. Yes, so so once 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 SABC let me on and we all agreed, uh, I, I okay, felt so, that was my triumph moment. It was not nut picking. But yes, there is nut picking. This is different. We haven't even gotten to the stage of nut picking. Most people just don't agree. They live in entirely different language universes, fact universes and so on right. and uh, it's like a good old yet, 19th century uh geopolitical squabble when you couldn't talk to people from other countries because you know it would take you know, two two days for the mail to arrive yeah. <laughs> and you would write you would write to your russian friend you'd say i'm most distressed at the cons at the at the prospect of war in europe again and your russian friend would write back and you would say no oh, it is most tragic <laughs> very sad they often I, I i before both world wars there was there was a sort of interesting thing about um almost taxi drivers uh uh turning into scouts for the for the body politic of paris uh to because no one could trust the news anymore uh or whatever the government was putting out there so you'd you sort of rely, but then the rumors would come. No, the Germans are coming. You got to flee Paris. You got to flee Paris, and then the next wave of rumors would come. No, 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 no. They're just saying that so that you leave all your stuff, and then they come rob your stuff, or or so that they get taxi fares. <laughs> so, and they did really well. I mean, Paris was evacuated pretty effectively by taxi, um, and also taxis were used in World War II uh, to to defend Paris against the old. And in World War One, there was like some horse buggies. Anyway, I'm pretty um, sure that there was a point where uh, taxi drivers had to fill in doing logistics or something. Uh, I yeah, can't remember quite early in the war because French didn't have drivers or trucks or something. Yeah, because the because certain army battalions had kind of given up. Then they put up a bit of a brave fight. Anyway, uh, the the point is that we do have, in some ways, more reliable information systems. In some ways, not. Here's a here's a an example. I think a couple of weeks ago we we mentioned I mentioned um, that part of the reason, without relitigating the whole question, part of the reason a lot of Russians feel um, that uh, feel aggrieved by what's going on in Ukraine is that the Ukrainian government underwent a coup in 2014. I felt a little bit insecure. I was like, let me go and let me go and dig into this coup, and. And firstly, it's, I mean, it's amazing. No one mentions the coup, right? And the whole point is that the Crimeans were like, okay, once the democratically elected president has been taken out by force, uh, we don't have to respect this country anymore and we can have a referendum to join a country that's not a complete rubbish country uh, that has coups all the time. Uh, and the same for the people in the Donbass, but they were denied a referendum, which is what they've been fighting over 
in their minds ever since. Um, so that's that's the version of the story on which the the Russians sound pretty reasonable, uh, and and the Ukrainian government sounds pretty terrible. Uh, but what are the details of the coup? So I mean Poroshenko, uh, Yanu, Yanu. It's not Poroshenko. He's the guy who comes afterwards. You've got Timoshenko who's in jail, uh, and you've got Yakunovich. But what Ukrainian politician hasn't been in jail at some point? Exactly. <laughs> the current Ukrainian president Zelensky is trying to put Poroshenko in jail for treason, for selling coal to uh, Russians, uh, and for, and buying coal from Russians in the Donbass region, which is like oh, it's like filthy, filthy, filthy. You can't touch the Russians. Uh, it's treason. Which is hilarious because Zelensky is collecting billions of dollars from Russians in transit fees from the oil, from the gas that goes through his thing. So he'll be tried for, for treason soon soon enough. Anyway, even Zelensky's allies are very embarrassed at him trying to put the previous president in jail. But literally the last four presidents of Ukraine have tried to put the previous president in jail. Yes, Ukraine does not have a very stable government. Which is why some people think it's not so unreasonable to try and, you know, be in a different country. But I promised... Nick and I promised each other that we would not relitigate this matter, so I'm not going to do that. The point is just this. With the coup, the, the technicality is that, you know, okay, so there's the there's the insurrection in Kiev, in the capital. 130 people are killed uh, from December through February because Yakunovich said that he wants to abandon the EU path and join the, the you know, do business with Russia. He $15 billion of Ukrainian debt is bought by the Russians. The Russians cut the gas price to Ukraine by a third. So, you know, Ukrainians can buy cheap gas. It's really good for them. And this is freaking out the pro-EU guys who worried about it. So they're up the ante on the insurrection. And eventually they invade the Ukrainian Union buildings and the president runs away and he says his car is being shot at. And the next day they say, well, the president's fled, so he's abandoned his office. So parliament's going to get together and vote for a new president, vote him out and vote for a new president. Um, this is how they they, they accomplish the coup. Uh, and it's only opposition parties in parliament, uh, but, you know, that hardly matters. Now, there's two versions of the story that I've drilled down to, like, McGill University professors and um, what was the other university? University of War not Warwick, Ilwich, uh, and two, two or three universities in the UK. We had professors, you know, uh, uh, East Europe uh, expert professors writing their things on the conversation and, and other sort of uh, credible highfalutin sources. And they've got completely different versions, right? So the one version is that he was impeached. And on that version, the following facts don't get mentioned. In the Ukrainian constitution, you can't be impeached unless the constitutional court presides over the matter, which it didn't do. And you can't get impeached unless you get a, a like three quarters majority of parliament or whatever it is, two thirds, uh, and they didn't get that many votes. So they missed the votes and they missed the procedure. So you could not legally be impeached. So he's illegally impeached. Now, if you read the pro-Russia English sources from universities like the universities of Chicago, <laughs> then you get the whole story and then you see, okay, it is an illegal impeachment. Uh, but then there's the other version, which is that he wasn't impeached, that in fact, uh, you can only impeach a guy if he's broken some kind of law and he didn't break any law. He just ran away and there was no formal procedure for that, which is why parliament could just pass a law by a simple majority to say, you know, here's a new law. If the president runs away, 
he's no longer the president. <laughs> uh, and that's a simple majority. Now, that's a great story because, the, the for example, the McGill professor who writes that story completely and says this is really good. You know, this is ingenious parliamentary. You know, these are lawmakers who are really putting the people's interests first. Um, and it's a very good thing that they didn't invite the apex court to see over this because no one trusts the Ukrainian court. And if the Ukrainian court had said this is a good idea, everyone would have said it's pro-opposite. You know, it's pro the new government. And if they'd said, no, it's a bad idea, they would have just said he's pro uh, Yakunovich. They would have no, I gotten think their hands messy. Fairly safe what to say person, this is the kind of pr problems what you can Hold on. Let me finish my sentence. What this person does not mention at the University of McGill is that the president was violently chased away. That he didn't, you know, she she leaves the reader with the impression, which most people in the Anglosphere would have because they haven't even heard of the coup in the first place and have forgotten about the insurrection, leaves the reader with the impression that the president sort of just found it all a bit tiring uh, and so decided to leave. <laughs> and then parliament was like, well, what do you do? I mean, she even says there's this hypothetical situation where if a president knows they're about to lose a vote, uh, then they just abandon their office. And then you can't impeach them because they haven't broken a law, but you can't remove them because the only way to remove them is by impeachment. Uh, so what do you do? Well, Parliament's got to pass this 50% plus one uh, idea of, of, of you can't abandon your office. This is the, you know, this, this, this professor acts as if this is this equivalent uh, to, to uh, 130 people being killed in the streets outside your office and then your office being taken over by uh, gun-wielding, fire-setting uh, insurrectionists, insurgents. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of, uh, it, it's two levels of crazy within a level of crazy, um, which I find interesting. But here's the, here's the, in terms of the, in terms of the old silo world, the, 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 the most siloed fact of the day is that the Russian parliament has been deliberating on the nature of East Ukraine of the Donbass. This is literally the only places covered in English that I can find is the Moscow Times, which is pretty credible sort of Putin critic uh, independent newspaper. Um, not as famous as Nova Gazeta, uh, but also much more serious than Nova Gazeta in some ways. Nova Gazeta is the Russian newspaper which won the Nobel Prize effectively last year. Yeah, I think, I think you actually talked about it in, in an episode we've done. You I talked did. about the whole story of them. Yeah. And I've been I've been reading them for the last few months, and I continue to be really disappointed at the really poor quality of writing. Um, in the same way that the Daily Maverick has, like, uh, by swallowing up Scorpio Amabungani, uh, gotten a lot of the best investigative journalists, although they weren't actually in charge of some of the best investigative journalism at the time, are currently in charge of a lot of the best investigative journalists, but have a lot of, like, pretty silly fluff um, on the side. Uh, Nova Gazeta has the bravest journalists in Russia, uh, some of whom many years ago have been killed um, in the course of their duties of seeking truth and putting it out there. Uh, but it's writing, the, the editors don't really believe in editing and the writing style is pretty dismal. They're grammatical mistakes. And I was like, I can't be calling out grammatical mistakes. So I've passed it over Russians. And they're like, no, dude, these people just like aren't even writing in proper Russian. Okay. Moscow Times is, is much more boring kind of newspaper. They've covered this a little bit, but you actually have to read the Cyrillic news uh, to see what Parliament's been doing. Now, why does that matter? That matters because two weeks ago, Nick and I litigated who's, who, you know, what are the merits of the case? What's really going on there? Uh, who's evil Knievel? 
Um, and a week ago, we just mentioned the Ukraine story in, by saying, you know, all the saber rattling seems like much ado about nothing in a way. Uh, we were covering this story in a sense way back last year when Russia was first building up troops. And if they wanted to do an attack, it would be a surprise attack. They wouldn't wait for the UK and the US to, to uh, uh, arm the Ukrainians uh, re, you know, to the teeth. Uh, they wouldn't wait for everyone to be watching and to have made up their mind that the Russians are evil. They would have snuck in a little bit like they did. Uh, with Ukraine, they were very quick uh, in, in Crimea, and they were very quick in Abkhazia and Ossetia and Georgia as well. So now that it's over, this is something else is going on. And in my view, what's going on is they're trying to get the gas lines reopened, but it could be something else. At this stage, it could be something else. Um, but it's but it's not too bad, and, and everyone else is making a big noise, even exaggerating how bad it is. What's changed my mind in that prognosis, where last week your line, Nicholas, you put it quite nicely, uh, we seem to be in the eye of a storm, in the eye of a hurricane, not just in terms of this, but in terms of many things. That is quite a peaceful time. Right, generally with global affairs. Yeah. What makes me think the eye of the hurricane might narrow to non-existence uh, in the Donbass and that there might actually be serious uh, military conflict and that a lot of, you know, tens of thousands of people will die and global markets will be affected and geopolitics will be affected for the next decade, is that the Russian parliament is meeting up, has met up this week to discuss the matter um, and will be voting on it in early February. Uh, this, is the, this is the sort of hidden fact. Uh, I think it's hidden because most people outside of Russia are not willing to think about Russia accepting like this. Putin's in charge and everyone does what Putin says or is fighting against Putin. But it's like, you know, everyone's... But, uh, as, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Russian Russian politicians do have a history of saying things that are, shall we say, indelicate. Yeah. And yeah. that's your fear, presumably, is that uh, some, some windbag from somewhere is going to stand up and be like, you know, it's time we taught these Ukrainians a real lesson about whatever and uh that could cause things to spiral out of control apps not just say something but pass a resolution what they are going to vote on is whether they should recognize the people's republic of luhansk and the people's republic of donetsk as uh russian territory right now there's some reason to say so right since the coup in 2014 those two regions have not participated in any ukrainian elections although there have been several they have tried to participate in russian elections but have been denied that by the russians they have tried to hold referenda uh, on gaining independence and or joining russia and have been denied the ability to do that effectively um they unlike crimea so whereas crimea is recognized by the russian parliament a, an act of russian parliament recognizes crimea that's why Crimea has voted in the last two parliamentary elections and in the last presidential election. But Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbass in general, are not recognized as part of Russia. And there's very good reason for that. The Russians in general, Russian strategists, would very much like the Donbass to stay in Ukraine. It does not suit them for, the, for, for Russia to, to take that territory. Because if they take that territory, Ukraine becomes more purely Ukrainian. And that's exactly their worry, uh, that they've got a, a, a neo-Nazi 
um, race nationalist Ukrainian neighbor. Um, uh, uh, and there, there is some evidence to suggest, you know, there's some evidence to support that uh, uh, assessment of what the Ukrainian government is. Certainly, if what Minsk to the agreement that Russia and France and Germany and the US and the Ukrainians all signed on to several years ago, the peace deal, was that the Donbass would stay inside of Ukraine with a special autonomous respect, so it'd kind of be a federal system. The whole reason the Russians want that is because as long as that's the case, the Ukraine will never join NATO, and the Russians will never have to deal with NATO being on their border. If Parliament, however, votes to say, well, that was clever geostrategy, that's coming from, from, from clever clonks like Putin, uh, we don't think like that. We think that these are Russian people, uh, uh, these, these, these people share our blood. Uh, they've been denied franchise in Ukraine. They've been denied franchise here. They've been fighting and dying to join us. We should respect that. If a majority of parliament votes to do that, Putin will have no choice but to invade. Uh, or for his little green men to take their uniforms off and uh, and become the Russian soldiers. That in some senses they always were. Um, and, and that will trigger, you know, it'll, it'll reintroduce sad conditions for people like my fiance's family who, you know, uh, I know people who have, who have died probably because the medicine that they relied on got too expensive um because of sanctions uh in previous rounds uh when gdp drops two to three percent uh that increases uh social tension which has negative effects on uh people's mental health and crime and suicide and all kinds of things you know it's not actually great to be submitted to to serious sanctions of course most russians would never admit this they they lean into it quite eagerly and cheers their vodka and they say stuff those guys if we can't eat french cheese we will drink more vodka. Uh, very, very, very spirited uh, responses to sanctions. I was in I was in Russia when they first got hit by sanctions after the Crimea uh, referendum or the annexation, however you want to put it. Um, amongst people who are very critical, most of them very critical of Putin, um, uh, but also very critical of the West, quote unquote. Uh, anyway, the point is that it would be sad for the Russians. I think it could also be really and I'm sad for thousands or tens of thousands of soldiers who kill each other on either side of the fence, completely devastating for the residents of the area uh, and, and, and some spanners in the works beyond that. Now, the final point on the Russian parliament is that it's not run by Putin, quite literally. It's just the last thing that people can, you know, everyone's everything's run by Putin. Uh, not the Russian parliament. His party lost its majority last year, which I mentioned in comparison to the ANC. His party's like got 30% endorsement, he has 60%, which is pretty much exactly the same as Ramaphosa and the ANC. And much like in our municipal elections, in fact, before the municipal elections, one of the reasons I was so confident in predicting this was I was saying we've, this experiment has kind of played out in terms of the polling. Levada is kind of like the pollster and think tank of Russia that sits in the same position as the IRR. And they made predictions much like ours, which were exactly right on the basis of their polling, which is pretty much, you know, it's good stuff. So who who who's taken over? Well, no one really. There's there's a sort of coalition 
uh, and there's hardly a coalition really needed because it's not direct proportional representation. Uh, so that you know they're on 49%, but they don't quite have what it takes, and they're not going to be the guys who push it over the line. They might not even vote for it at all. Uh, you might get the party splits and some abstentions, from what I can tell. The guys who are into it are the third largest party who are hardcore jingoist race nationalists, uh, uh, much like the Ukrainians, and they draw a lot of spirit from the Ukrainians, whereas the Ukrainians are like passing race laws to say that Russians aren't indigenous and Ukrainians are and Cossacks are. These are Russians who think that, you know, we should be passing similar mm -hmm. indigene laws in Russia, uh, who think that Russia's problem is that it's not big enough. Uh, these are these are a little bit like, as far as I can tell, United the ruling party's attitude to them is a little bit like Putin's attitude to the head of Chechnya, which is complicated. Uh, some people will read it, them as mere puppets. Uh, but you could ask yourself in a South African context, do you think that the EFF are the ANC's puppets? Uh, or are they a radical group that you know took ANC ideology and distilled it and accelerated it and 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 tried to get the ANC to follow along with them. Depending on what you might think about that, you might think one way or another about what's going on in Russia. The second largest party is the Communist Party, which uh, sometimes gets irked by Vladimir Putin's criticism of Lenin uh, in terms of the Uk in terms of the Ukrainian split, but sometimes not. Anyway, they uh, the, the the Russian Communist Party is communist a little bit in the way that the Chinese Communist Party is communist. Um, but it is a lot more vodka-soaked. And that sounds like kind of stereotypical. But if you just look at their their campaign ads, um, they're quite... That's they've the donkey got a lot one, of, is it? Yes, the donkey one, which is great. It's the best campaign ad in the 21st century. Um, but so... so uh, it, I... There's, as far as I can tell from from scanning the Cyrillic news, um, the the real war drum is being beaten from outside the 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 the, the party with the most votes in parliament. Um, so the, if they just split a little bit, they'll get a majority, and then Putin has to has to follow through or resign because it is the executive's duty to follow the legislature's determination. That's a long spiel. Sorry, this is supposed to be five. Or, uh, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think anyone believed that. <laughs> Do you, on a on a completely uh, 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 opposite, and uh, uh, well, a vaguely related tangent. Do you know much about the origins of the Cossacks? Is a sort of well, I do in in the sense that I've been reading you. I've been reading some. I've been reading a ding dong thing. Um, including Vladimir Putin's essay um, on the subject uh, and some academics in Russia and some academics in Ukraine uh, disagreeing so what, about this. What year did they start the story? Uh, the, they start the story around, uh, I want to say the 800s. So the, the version of the story that I've read is that basically the Cossacks are this kind of semi-settled, semi, they're like a, they're like, if you can imagine the steppe peoples, like the Tatars and the Cumans and the Kipchaks and the Mongols, 
who live out on the grassland and they mostly just herd animals and ride horses and that kind of thing. And then you've got like an intermediate zone and then you've got people who live in towns or villages and farm for a living and, you know, focused far more on sedentary lifestyle that in a lot of ways, the Cossacks are kind of a weird, they're that middle ground. They sort of nomadic, they're sort of not nomadic. They have their own culture and they come in a lot of ways out of serfs fleeing uh, very restrictive autocratic lords in both uh, uh, Russia and Poland. Uh, and they, they go basically to the steppe grasslands because there's no way, you know, no one can control you there. Uh, it's impossible to rule. And they create these sort of strange communities that then become semi-integrated with the state as like uh, professional soldiers. They're first used by the Poles for a very long time to basically uh, tame the steppe and protect against Tatar raids, which were a very common thing and resulted in an enormous number of slaves being taken from, from Eastern Europe. And then later the Cossacks switched sides and joined the Russians. Uh, and what's interesting about them is they were famous uh, for their allegedly uh, democratic internal self-governance. Uh, and so one of the great ironies of them is that they became sort of the fist, because they were sort of separate from the rest of uh, Russian society, they became the fist of the Tsar's autocratic repression machine. Uh, whereas they themselves were far more democratic than pretty much everyone else. They somehow you know, got this reputation as being the, the, the tool of, of Tsarist oppression, uh, which is kind of a weird thing about Eastern European history. But anyway, so yeah, I don't so understand I, them very well, but I'm very Leo interested in them. Tolstoy, the, the the famous one, um, has. <laughs> no, 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 I assume not Tolstoy, the cigarette seller. <laughs> uh, there's the other. There's the less famous one. Um, he wrote the only the only uh, full text of his that I read in Russian um, was a story about a Cossack, uh, a sort of military expedition. Um, Tolstoy himself was. Uh, rather the soldier gentleman in a way uh in his early life and then sort of only after he got bored with as some versions go got you know became sexually bored in marriage did he settle down into vegetarianism and, and long-winded novel writing um <laughs> this is look russians are pretty harsh in how they describe their heroes this is a kind of a, a, Coming from someone who loves Tolstoy, not me. I, I, I can't say that I know his work well enough. Um, but I did read the story. And and it, and it was, you know, sort of quite sad, humiliating accounts of of the Cossacks being, the, the Cossackness being ground out of the Cossacks by mm. um, uh, vodka daily allowances as part of their army rations, by yeah. long uh, requirements for tours of duty. But so, but the, to date it back to the 800s, the story, the alternative story goes like this, and this is in a way the historical, um, a, a way to historicize the conflict, which I don't think is enlightening to try and understand the conflict. I think it's enlightening to try and understand how stupid humans are. Um, <laughs> so the Ukrainian version, and we heard someone give this version at the Liberal Club, whose name I won't mention because that's against the rules. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians have always been I, a freedom-loving... I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't actually there uh, yes. for that one. I, but, but get... I, I will make a distinction. Um, yeah. There is a difference between Cossacks and Ukrainian Slavs. Not according to the Ukrainian law, 
the indigenous right. race law, which was passed in 2018. According to that law, whatever kind of Cossack you are, well, you are a Ukrainian. Well, but if well, you are well, a Russian, well, then you are not a Ukrainian. One of the, one and of the it's a pencil test that. law. It is a genius, it's a bloodline law, but without proper bloodline analysis. So it's just, I mean, it's it's pencil test madness. No, I'm saying I, 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 I think I think you may be slightly wrong there in that there was uh, 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 I mean that may be the modern distinction, but in the past definitely there was this you know, Cossack is a very weird identity because no, I'm it's aware not, they've got three subcategories. Yeah. They they define Cossacks, I can't remember the other two, not Tatar, um, Cossacks and There's, two other subgroups as counting as indigenous Ukrainians. Right. So, but so, so I don't know. I don't know what the anything about the uh, modern Ukraine laws of this. But what I do know is that um, you know, to be a Cossack didn't necessarily mean it. It suggested that you were probably an Orthodox Christian rather than a Catholic. Now you're uh, talking like Putin. Now, you, now you're hitting Putin's <laughs> talking points. Uh, it, it it was it was also in part of a profession. So there was a role of Cossacks. Yeah. That like yep. the Polish government had, um, and then later the Russian government, and then you you know you were a listed Cossack, and then there were Cossacks who were unlisted Cossacks, who sort of lived in the same community, and it was kind of a lifestyle, it was kind of a culture, it was kind a little of bit a like job. samurai, yeah, right, and, and this was this was often differentiated from uh, I think they used to call them the Ruthenians, uh, which is like the old name for for Ukrainians, uh, or, or or the Western of the Eastern Slavs. So, 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 so let's get back to the ancient history. So this is, so the two stories are this. One story is this Ukrainian story that I was trying to mention at Liberal Club, where there are these, there are these uh, tribes that uh, divide and unite, uh, but really what, what they have in common, aside from a kind of supposed, uh, what they have in common is a love for freedom, unlike their neighbors, and uh, this is what eventually leads to their destiny of, of sort of forming Ukraine. This is the bloodline of freedom. And, uh, and it's very wonderful. Uh, and, it's, and it's clearly not Russian because the Russians enslaved everyone and they were very terrible to the Ukrainians and they did a genocide in the, in the early parts of the Soviet, you, you know, the salmon, the famine, where mostly Ukrainians suffered. So that's one. The other version, uh, Putin's version, is that no, there's there's one uh, people here. They are the Rus. He's aware of there being Slavs, but to him, Slav is like white. It's like not really an interesting unifying concept. Interesting unifying concept is is smaller than that. It's the Rus, which does not include Aryans. Very very much does not include Aryans. The Germans are their natural enemies, um, as are the Mongols. And they united. Let's say around eight hundred. Be fair, the Mongols are most cultures' enemies. <laughs> Look, very including Ukrainians. Yeah, no, there's not a lot of yeah, fun they, memories of the Golden there, there are very few uh, uh, population groups that have lived next to the Mongols who have thought, you know, those guys are just swell. <laughs> anyway, so so what unites them is religion, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, and this is, and you know, this, you, 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 the, you, you see, you see this version of history really does get written about in the 1100s. Um, and formal Russia in a sense starts in nine, 910 
uh, AD. What was the what's it? Prince Prince Vladimir is it the one who baptizes the Kievan Rus? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he so, becomes the first Christian monarch in that part of the world uh, because he was seeking a Byzantine alliance at the time. And there's this wonderful name of the history that's written in 1162, which it's like, you know, recollections of troubled times or something like that, um, which, which says there were three kinds from the beginning. There have always been these three kinds of Russians. There are sort of the borderland Russians, which the Mala Russians. There are the... Uh, Upland Russians, the Velika Russians, and then there are the sort of uh, uh, Russians in the snow or the Russians that are whiter. It's hard to tell the Belarusians, Beli, uh, as in many European languages, means white. So the Belarusians, the Mala Russians, and the Velika Russians, and the Mala Russians include many, many different tribes, some of which later get identified as Ukrainian. Ukrainian earlier has a different kind of sense to it. Um, as just being the vanguard, I mean, Ukraina in Russian and in Ukrainian basically means border or edge. Um, and uh, you, you, the uh, uh, where Kiev is is not the edge of anything until after the colonization by the Khans, the Mongolians, and in the process of decolonization, Moscow uh, pips it. In the balance of forces game, uh, Putin sort of <laughs> glides over how they managed to do that. They basically seized the tax power um, from the Khanate and said, "We will tax our neighbors and then pay whatever you want well, back to you." Which I, is I, I, tax I think, I think it's, We've talked about yeah, tax but, farming. It's like a very difficult thing to deal with taxes in it. I don't know where this. Uh, I assume Putin didn't use the word decolonize for the steps there because, like. The Tatars, the Mongols, the Cumans, the whatever, have been living on the steppe since, you know, the horses domesticated. No, They're... decolonizing the steppes from the Khanate's rule. Yeah, well, it's not. <laughs> so the steppe is where the Khanate comes from. I mean, decolonization I, I of South Africa doesn't mean getting rid of all white people. It means no longer falling under the yoke of uh, the, the Westminster. <laughs> Right, so so, but that this is this is I can think of this as I don't know. It feels like two phases. There was one where you're subjects, and then there's one when you sort of went on the offense, and then the steps became Russian. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So right. so yeah, th there's the decolonization of Russia, and then there's the 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 double decolonization of Russia, or the recolonization of Russia, or or really just the imperial expansion of it. Uh, no, he doesn't get too much into that. Uh, uh, because that's not his focus, because his focus is more on the Ukrainian side. It's so hard, and, but with the Ukrainian side, it's very much the same story. So the story with the Cossacks is that these are these are good uh, Orthodox Christian people uh, who belong to the broader family of Rus, um, and they are taken over, you know, first by the Khanate, and then that goes away, and then it's all back to sort of happiness, and then they get taken over by the by the Lithuanians, and then the Polish join in that and then Polish Lithuanian and the Polish sort of fully take over and then that's a bit of a nightmare and then the Russians end up liberating them from that and then it's all very better um, and then um, then there's like a, a, a very long complicated thing that happens around the period of the inception of the Soviet Union where you've got lots of delegations 
coming particularly from the Donbass to say we want to be on the Russian side of things um, and uh, you've got lots of delegations saying we should all be one country and then you've got some delegations which Lenin leads saying no we're going to split this up and Lenin uh, rejects the petition uh, to either redraw or, or, or draw the border um, so that the majority Russian-speaking areas would fall inside of the Russian part, the, 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 the actual Soviet Union, and uh, instead they get stuck uh, in the Ukrainian part. And at that, and of course, by that point, the notion of Cossack has been um, eroded in the sense that the role in society that Cossacks played um, is no longer viable. And in the sense that the social identity, sal the salient social identities um, that that mattered in the day, uh, had become different, and Putin is quite careful, as are most Russians. It's a very strange thing about most Russians. Are very careful that I know at least, very careful not to talk about the the Soviet rejection of Orthodox Christianity uh, very often, but when they do mention it it has kind of increasingly become described as the cardinal sin of the Soviet Union. More than any other mistake, this is really what the Soviets got wrong. Um, and, and, and it's a delicate matter. I mean, I think as time progresses, the, the trajectory of Russia to becoming an increasingly Christian nationalist, orthodox nationalist state, um, which is quite interesting because it because it really is a very multiracial place in a lot of ways, um, and it's a way to deal with that. Um, but it's also quite dangerous in some ways. And and well, because there's the, lots of it's quite a lot of Russians who aren't Muslim, uh, who aren't Christians. Yeah, and 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 that friction um, is surprisingly low at the moment, and has been surprisingly low, right? But well, um, Chechnya. Yeah. Uh, although but is the, the a part of Russia, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, when you when you when you're going to get clever about redrawing things. Um, so, but anyway, so the point is that on on this version of the story, the Cossacks, like everyone else in that area, were Rus, were part of the same race, um, basically from the beginning, from as far back as anyone would care to remember, at least as far back as the days when Orthodox Christianity was spreading. And then were, were, were messed about from two sides, firstly from these sort of heathens and then from these Catholics, um, and so have um, had a really tough time of it and, and need to be treated with extra special respect. And in that regard, I see the same attitude being expressed today as I see in both uh, Tolstoy and even more so the work of, of Mikhail Lermontov, in the 1840s, uh, who, who's very much writing about Cossacks in, 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 in that vein. Um, uh, uh, something to, something kind of, a kind of, a, a kind of uh, impinged role, uh, somewhat victimized by history to look up to. Um, and I think part of the reason that, 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 that Cossacks play, I think part of the function of Cossacks is that they kind of exemplify or, or distill um, something that culturally a lot of Russians 
that a lot of Russian culture seems to be built around. Um, harsh history, tragic fate, uh, nevertheless, like quite a militant and stoic uh, face to, to bring to bear on it. A sort of an unwritten code um, and a good spirit. Now, what that amounts to in real politic terms, or, or, or rather in, 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 yeah, is, 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 a, is a war of words between Ukrainian leaders and Russian leaders, which feels very racy to me, uh, where the one side is saying we're two different races. The Ukrainians are saying there's, you know, there's Ukrainians and we've got our own story. Um, and yes, we got a bit buggered around by the Polish, but we fought against that. We got buggered around by you guys, but we fought against that. We, you know, we, we are our own race state. We're going to be great as our own race state. And you've got the Russian story, which is like, nah, dude, we all belong to one big family. You know, within the larger race of Russ, there are these subcategories, but this is the larger one. And it's quite different to what was happening between about 1880 and 1914, where Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kiev and, you know, uh, 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 Anyone who could read a newspaper in Serbia, especially Serbia, but also uh, uh, the, the rest of the Balkan states, uh, was was talking about the Slav race. And part of what's different between the Slav and the Rus is precisely that the Rus story excludes all the Balkans, um, who are <laughs> that's convenient. Who are you know? It's, so they're. <laughs> wisdom <laughs> in how the race narrative has evolved <laughs> yeah you it's, see that's what that that's been one of the great not, uh... it's not really it's really not better it it feels like a very counterproductive way to be thinking about um what's going on here and and i think it's a lot like how some people think of the israel-palestine conflict they think the way you solve the israel-palestine conflict is by figuring out who got here first or if we agree that everyone kind of that's that's a, the wrong way to think about it, then the way you should think about it is who infringed upon whom first in the worst way. And so you can go back 10 years or 30 years or 50 years or, or 200 years. Or as it turns out, you can go back in that situation kind of more than 2000 years. Um, in some ways, the Donbass is slightly less complicated because I haven't heard anyone try to go back further than uh, 800, 900 AD. Oh, it's because no but written if, evidence exists from before then. <laughs> so except for Herodotus. You see, my thought is that Herodotus writes about the Scythians with the greatest respect of all. And I kind of think that all of this comes down from the Scythians. Uh, dude, who the Scythians are definitely who, not Slavs, though. Scythians are, are, uh, are, are, are step nomads. They're more like Turks. Well, the Cossacks are pretty step nomadish. As well, that's said. the thing is that they're kind of the sort of weird in between, right? And if you think uh, that they look too dark or something, I mean, uh, looks looks can and do change over two thousand five hundred years. So, um, so let me let and and let I me, just want to say about the Scythians. The reason I like the Scythians is because the story there is that they would, in order to be initiated uh, as a man, you'd have to sort of scalp, you'd have to kill some people and and take their scalps off, and you'd have to sew them together. You sew the scalps of your enemies together to make a blanket that you put over your horse. And until then, you have to ride like full bareback or run around on your feet. And once you've got one blanket of scalps, you can ride that as a leather as a leather cushion on the horse. And then if you kill yeah, more, you can that's get a, a very heroic story. And then you get a, a um, if you want to own more than one horse, you have to kill enough people to make more than one blanket. And the thought so, there is this literally is as far back as you can kind of go 
the thought there is that when the when the Persians, what we would now call the Persians, are trying to invade the Greeks, Sparta, three hundred, oh, oh, all of that, they they uh, uh, um, <laughs> they they end up coming south to the Greeks because they don't want to go north to the Scythians because they Xerxes won, Darius won, Darius won. I think was so yeah. humiliated um, by the Scythians. Well, famously, the, the most outrageous. Uh, yeah, know. the the first. Um... The first uh, uh, Persian emperor, which was Cyrus the Great, was apparently killed by the Scythian warrior queen uh, when he decided to invade the steppe. Uh, until until the, the until basically the firearm was not just invented but became you know very good, it was very difficult to rule the steppe. You couldn't do, <laughs> do, but you're missing the best detail. The queen not only killed him; she sent an emissary before the battle to say that she would drink from his skull. And then she did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she yes. cut off his head and deep brained him and then had a slicky drink. And then the second, then the Darius too came down to try and avenge his father's death and had like a hundred men carry a bowl of silver with his water because he had to drink the special water that was only touched by silver. <laughs> this mad kind of thing. Anyway, they get there and the Scythians are, the are all lined up on one side of the river. And there's like 10,000 of them. And the Persians are there and there's like 500,000 of them or whatever it is. Um, and they all line up for battle and, and there's a whole bunch of confusing things that happen. But the kicker in the story of Herodotus is that as it's about to set off, um, a rabbit sort of springs from the bushes near the Scythian front lines. And the Scythians are so sick of like standing around and like waiting to do this formal battle thing that somehow has been agreed upon that he goes and runs after the rabbit because it's like a bit of a tradition there to see, you know, some youth are, are fast enough and agile enough that they can actually catch a rabbit with their bare hands, which if you've ever been around a rabbit, you know, it's pretty outrageous. It's and then crazy, another yeah. youth breaks out to try and catch the rabbit. And then the, Darius too says, what the hell's going on? Their front line is, is, is breaking or they're coming after us. Then it's turning to the left. Like what's going on? And the emissary runs down, asks the general, he, he sent someone down, asks someone right on the front line you know, sort of 400 meters away from the Scythian's front of mine, comes back up the hill and says, no, 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 what happened is there was a little rabbit <laughs> that started <laughs> running around and they got distracted and they're chasing after the rabbit. And the general says, dude, this is perfect timing. Like they're broken formation. Like we've got to go and take them now. We've got 20, 30, 50 to one odds numbers on our side. And Darius too says, the gods have prophesied that I would see my death here. And and it must be so, for see how unperturbed they are by the odds stacked <laughs> against them. It must be that these are truly the God's chosen people. And he turns around and leaves uh, with his tail between his legs because he just he just can't handle these these sort of rapscallions. Um, yeah. And there's a different uh, version probably... of the story the Persians tell where they say he just decided like these people would not be worth conquering if they can't even take their life seriously enough to go to war properly. And instead, going to chase off a rabbit. Like, there's nothing to be gained by yeah, I think, conquering. I it, think this, which is a part so, of the story which resonates quite interestingly when you consider yeah. that Ukraine is the only place in the world I know of that has performed worse than ESCOM, uh, for example. No, it has halved its power production output in the last to, 20 years. To be fair, its it probably has. is lower than South Africa's, although it was one of the richest yeah. uh, satellite states uh, to, 40 years to, ago. To be it's fair, a, it's probably. Presidents are all trying to erase each other. <laughs> Right. It's probably got some of the richest soil in the world. So if you can actually get it working, which is a very big, you know, if, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it, it could potentially be quite uh, quite pleasant. But so going back to the story, the story of the version of history that uh, you recounted from uh, old Vlad. It, and, uh, and backed up some by many of others, yeah, but yeah, I think yeah, it's no, hilarious. No. Yeah, right. You know, thinking about this and actually, you know, what I understand about Cossacks and Cossack identity, a lot of what the story really just tells me is how, you know, identity really is. People people often pretend like they believe in race identity, but in reality, like these things, they just they just they're not real things. What is a what is a Ukrainian? What is a Russian? These things, you know, have changed so much over the centuries. And the Cossack is a perfect example of that because they're this sort of, you know, if you went and you drew the bloodlines of people who you knew had Cossack ancestors back, you would find some of them were Slavs, some of them were Tatars, some of them were possibly even Poles or Lithuanians. Uh, uh, some oh, of them you're going to find Aryans. Yeah. Right, right, right. Because you know they really were like like I said they were this sort of weird cultural military ethno religious sort of transition zone group uh, uh being semi-nomadic semi themselves except when they lived in these big military camps called I think it's a sitch s-i-c-h I don't know how to say it uh, uh t-e-c-h I would imagine I think there's a sir Possibly, but yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure it's different in all of the different languages that they speak. There. Also, right. by the way, the Cossacks you could sometimes runaways could kind of go and become Cossacks. You could, you yes. could, you could fall in. Um, so, and that's very be... possibly how how it started in the first place. Uh, yeah, Cossackness is people running off their estates, the noble estates, because Eastern Europe did historically have, well, at least since the 1200s, I think, some of the most repressive of all. Uh, uh, feudalism. So in, you know, France and England, for example, there were quite a lot of uh, 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 peasants who owned their own land and didn't owe service to a lord and could do things without their lord's permission, like get married. Whereas in Eastern Europe, that was not impossible, but much rarer. Uh, the, the, in fact, particularly... often, yes, yeah, some of the most famous yeah. uh, Russian paintings, when they finally... Um, stop painting just purely religious scenes. There's, there's, there's a, oh god, it's a beautiful painting called Svadba of a nobleman. So there was this nasty tradition where uh, if a serf was to be married, a, 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 you have to be a virgin, obviously, young lady. The, the you're going to talk about prima nocta. Would would would, would have to. It's test not. Her art. It's not. It's not true. It's not true. It's very interesting. This actually. So. This is not. Let me just finish about the painting. Yeah. The painting is where the the master actually decides to marry the the girl. The the, the girl uh, instead of the, the original husband. Yeah. And so you see, and that definitely uh, uh, would be a power that he bought. And and so you see this like oh super wrinkly like uh like the the under lids of his eyes are like showing red because the droop <laughs> is so hard, dude. Beautifully painted, marrying this 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 like thirteen year old girl. Um, so the interesting thing about Prima Nocta is it's a story that keeps coming up in historical sources, but no one ever says it's happening or it's allowed or there's no yeah, evidence that it's ever allowed. It's always that. like it's always like they used to do this, and yeah, that's yeah. why things are better now. It's no. just curious because it's like. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, look, I don't know. I mean, I but but anyway, the the, the idea the, the the idea certainly holds that there was unusually high levels of oppression, no, for and sure. that created reasons. I don't. I mean, I don't know that that's where the Cossacks started or any of these groups started. But it look, there are also some analogs to what goes on in Basque country um, on the other side of Europe. Um, and my understanding is that uh, the hill tribes around Korea um, have a version of history that's not entirely different themselves uh, or, or rather has similar tensions insofar as there's a claim of like uh, original sedentariness. There's also a claim of like this being a, a home for fugitives from oppressive, highly centralized regimes. Oh, uh, China and Japan. Yeah. And that the combination of those claims is 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 not really tested too much because races are real things. They just not they really are social constructs. This is why social construct theory is right. actually an improvement on on the biological thesis of race. Because if you drill down a Zulu bloodline uh or a Kosa bloodline or a Cossack bloodline, or a, a Rus bloodline, or a Malarus, or a Belarus, or a, a Korean, or whatever, you're going to find uh, that <laughs> the story gets very confusing very, very quickly. Um, but if you hold on that. to a sense of team spirit and the thought that this is the team fighting against that team, uh, you, can, you, can, you can go a long way so far that you can you can uh, find yourself in the position of killing other people that you, that right. you don't consider to be wrong in any sense, accepting that they belong to that bloodline. Uh, which I, 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 seem, ours. I seem, I seem to remember reading somewhere and I, and I for the life of me can't remember what the source of this was, but that you can detect Portuguese ancestry, many Cossa uh, people because there are people who they are descended from who were, were shipwrecked, Portuguese sailors shipwrecked going around the coast of Africa in the 1500s. And the nearest Portuguese colony, which is at the time Lorenzo Marx, which is modern Maputo, very, very far away through, you know, Too far to uncertain, wild, <laughs> difficult, you know, uh, uh, difficult to, to traverse uh, Southern Africa. Um, and of course, they also didn't really know the way. So they were like, okay, well, I guess, you know, this is my life now. <laughs> I'm now a Cossa. <laughs> and, you know, a couple of generations and you're never going to notice that that person ever had children or ever integrated into that community. Of course, there's no one for them to speak Portuguese with. And, you know, the, 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 the obvious physical markers of their ancestry disappear quite quickly. And uh, yet, if you do the DNA testing, there it is still hanging out in the, in, in the very deep recesses of the genes somewhere. Mm. Uh, which is, but, but, you know, the salt, the, the whole Ukraine thing, I mean, it's, uh, cause like you go back and you say, okay, well then there was Lenin kind of being pro-Ukrainian and then there's Stalin as being anti-Ukrainian and then there's Russification that goes on during the czar period and then stops Wait, and then goes on again. Stop. You can't stop there. I mean, uh, you have, you have, uh, I think Brezhnev, and Gorbachev both were Ukrainian. <laughs> no, no, uh, it was only Khrushchev, wasn't it? No, it's two. It was only Khrushchev. Khrushchev oh, anyway. and Brezhnev. Anyway, so, it's so two you've of got them. this sort of. I can't remember yeah. which two it was. I don't really. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous that people care. <laughs> That's yeah. my point. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, it, it, this has been a contentious issue basically since when was the, I mean, I think one of the reasons that the Cossacks, even though they're not necessarily the, you know, the true representative, you know, that did the Cossacks speak Ukrainian? I don't actually know. Um, but at, at home, as it were, when they were riding the horse. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, before they became part of the Russian Empire, did they speak Ukrainian? No, you're going back uh, to the assumption. I, look, my assumption is that might be a version of the truth. The other version of the truth might be the Putin's version of the truth, where they were part of the Russian Empire before anything else, as it were. That there was no Russian Empire. That there was a series of tribes. No, no, but I mean, before the Russian, I mean, before the languages that would become Russian existed, they were Ex speaking the language that would become Ukrainian. Oh, no, so the language that would become Ukrainian and the language would become Russian are the same language. That seems pretty much beyond dispute. No, there was Ukrainian a time when they were... Yeah, so they Ukrainian, both share... They both come from, from old Slavonic, I think, right? Yes, correct. But then they did they did split at some point, right? So yes. I'm saying, did the... Before, before the Cossacks became part of the Russian Empire later, were they speaking Western Rus? You know, one of these dialects that would eventually. What dialect were these? Yeah, I right. mean. So I, I, I so I, I, don't know the, the, the. I have no idea. Right. Um, but I assume there's two versions. I assume that there's someone out there who's going to very confidently say, "No, no, no. These guys in 1232 were speaking uh, uh, a, a slightly different dialect." That's definitely much more Ukrainian. And then someone else is going to say, no, 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 no. they were speaking a slightly different dialect that was definitely more uh, meta-Russian. At that stage, you couldn't cut between the two. And I don't I don't have an opinion, but then, I'm sure that there's someone out there who has strong opinions, yeah. and then there's, depending on their current this, political views, not depending on the actual right. differences in evidence uh, or the silos course, that they belong this, to. Yeah. There's this funny thing that uh, the Rus are a, a Scandinavian tribe or at least a name for Scandinavians, for Scandinavians living in Russia, which makes <laughs> the whole idea of, you know... A whole pure bloodline thing. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I you, go to North, dude, you go to India and you'll find a very exciting story about what Aryan means. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I, I know that this, is, that this is like one of those sort of historical areas that's contested, but I'm pretty sure that the, this... The consensus version at the moment is something along the lines of there were these tribes of uh, Slavs and and also Uralic people living uh, along the sort of major river systems of what is today Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. And then Scandinavian warriors and explorers and adventurers came and set up little trading towns along the rivers there. Sometimes they conquered the locals. Sometimes they sort of just set up their own settlements. They colonized. And over time, the Scandinavians sort of melded into the larger Slavic population around them. But the political structures they created were the ones then that formed the first of Russia, which is uh, the Kievan Rus state, which is the very first sort of. Uh, yeah, there are, I guess what there are different. Russia. I think there are different versions of that story as well. So, so one version is exactly oh, like that. I said, it's the other version. <laughs> The other version, I, I sorry, I'm just going against the contested. You said contested and consensus. Um, the the other version is that the 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 there is there are clearly invitations sent on multiple instances, but right at the beginning, for 
Swedes effectively to come and administer um, conflicts between people thinking of themselves as Rusoslav. And the thought there was twofold. Partly it's kind of a deference to those who clearly have more power over technology with the presumption being an understanding that if you are better at building ships, you must be better at getting people to not kill each other. <laughs> because one sure way not to build a ship is to just kill everyone uh, instead of building a ship. Um, uh, and, uh, and the other being... Uh, and this is where the two stories bleed into each other, that in fact, this is how it started in the first place. Um, and that this was just a return uh, to that status quo. So again, you get the sense of every colonial moment is also a liberation moment. And every liberation moment has a sense in which it is a new act of colonization. Uh, so when the Rus call in this, the Swedes to say, please come help administer us is this like an imposed colonial the third story is that they don't ask they get forced is this uh is this a return to the ex-ante status quo in other words things started out with this sort of happy mixture of two of two groups um and now it's gone too one-sided with just the locals and we need some more of the skills that come from the north uh or is this um a self-invited subjugation uh or uh, an enforced one um now i'm i really don't have much to go on that other than sort of uh conversations with uh with with phds and professors not of history but who have very strong views about the history of russia and who all completely disagree with each other um so I, i'm i'm very uh, well have you, you know, ever put two i started this with together. I started this with McGill University tells you that there was a that there was no coup because they because they voted to say that the president of Ukraine left in 2014 and in 2014 she neglects to mention that the president was chased out. It's on footage, not him being chased out, but it's on footage that the whole Kievan Square and the whole of Kiev was sort of overwhelmed by force and that the Union buildings effectively were were physically invaded. She doesn't mention that. This is a person writing in 2021 about 2014, omitting a hugely relevant fact. Then you've got another side writing about uh, the, the president of Ukraine being impeached in Britannica, Britannica.com. The first encyclopedia I ever got in my life was Britannica. I mean, there is no more prestigious encyclopedia in the world. They went online, go Google 2014 Ukraine, uh, Yanukovych, you will find description of an impeachment. And there you will find notice, no mention of the fact that the impeachment could not have been legal because there are laws in the Ukrainian constitution about impeachment and they require the court to oversee it and that a certain number of votes be passed, not just a majority. In Britannica, it just says a majority of parliament voted for impeachment. So if we can't get it right about 2014, right, if two people, if two prestigious sources can be missing half the story so that neither of them really get to the thought that it's a coup, and in Russia you get the thought that it's a coup with hardly any mention of the fact that Yanukovych arrested Yulia Tymoshenko, the previous president. Right. Uh, or, maybe or rightly, the, or maybe the, wrongly. Or uh, the belief but, amongst but what, the Ukrainian protesters that uh, uh, what's-his-face um, Ukrainian president was shooting them uh, 
shooting them with snipers and soldiers and there's trying hardly to crush... any doubt yes right and, and that was that was because that's sort of how it started i mean this that's what was so strange about this whole geopolitical crisis is it started from oh there's this uh decision to make one trade deal over another and then it starts some protests and then the protests escalate and then there's repression and then the protests get more violent and then there's more repression and then it just kind of gets out of well <laughs> to where exactly. russia there's and an, nato are going to get each other the yeah. whole world is obsessed. South Africans, every South African has an opinion on the insurrection last year. Every American, everyone in the whole goddamn world that speaks English has an opinion about the the time on the 6th of January that a bunch of hooligans invaded the capital of America. Guess what? The presidents were not deposed violently, right? In an actual case where an insurrection got out of hand, got violent, and a president was deposed, we can't settle on a version of the story. How can the same species of monkey that we are barely descended from the tree you know possibly hope to disambiguate the history of the, the dnieper what lies between the dnieper and the volga river <laughs> between 700 and 1480 yeah, it have... is it is and i'm not saying i nicholas loves this stuff more than i do but i love this stuff i love the history i think the difference between us in some ways and and a lot of the the, the 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 politics about this, well, at least in my case, is that I I really am curious about that history because I think it's 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 wonderful to try and find the facts and it's wonderful storytelling. I really think it's, that it should not be a way to try and figure out how to resolve right. a political conflict. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I must say I I I'm going to be real. I blame Woodrow Wilson for all of this. Well, yeah, Putin mentions Wilson in his essay as well. So you, you're doing very well as a Putinist today. Dude, me, me, me and Putin, when it comes to Wilson, I think we're probably quite on the same page. Maybe not Wait, for who, the same reasons, uh, uh, but but Woodrow Wilson being a malevolent scourge who destroyed so much of good stuff in the 20th century. <laughs> that's that's something I could get behind. And, and in his way, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin uh, was a bit of a Wilson. Yeah, well, they were uh, both, he, he made very they were both similar Nikes. jokes. <laughs> I, th I think there are more interesting and nuanced similarities. They were, <laughs> they may both be, but that's bookish. the simplest way I could put it. <laughs> they were both, yeah, both bookish. They were both killed by strokes, weren't they? I can't say that I know either of the circumstances. Because I, I know, you know, that uh, heart attack you know stroke, was, I don't know. You know that uh, that amendment, like the Twenty Fifth Amendment or whatever, the one that people, stupid people, kept talking about using against Trump, yeah. right? Which would never work because of the way it's structured. But anyway, um, I'm pretty sure that was put in because Woodrow Wilson, towards the end of his of his of his of his time in office, had a had a massive stroke, and then his wife started running the country, <laughs> pretending to be him, <laughs> and they. <laughs> The, the afterwards the congress was like okay we need to have a way of making sure that that never happens again so the 25th amendment was very specifically written to prevent wilson, woodrow wilson yeah woodrow wilson's uh, uh, wife from running the running country, the country. <laughs> using that's why if you look at it exactly because uh, uh, like he apparently had the stroke and was sort of basically incapable it took him like years to recover because he was just and he was never the same right he was just finished um and she restricted all access to him and all of his 
instructions suddenly started going out only in writing. Like he didn't right. talk to him. <laughs> and his wife was the only person who was allowed to see him all the time. <laughs> yeah, there were some there were some worries that Reagan was involved in a similar thing. But you although, know, although towards the I, end of the day. Yeah, that, that was after probably if there was anything, it was probably right at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, these 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 things are look, I part of what I think is so comical about this is that is that this is this is such this is a really good instance, in my opinion. Um it, not necessarily the, the 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 proximate causes of the conflict, but rather the way that people are telling themselves the story in mm. Moscow and Kiev through history. It is is such an unstable thing about race is how you find the right size. What's the right size for the race to be? Because, I mean, we, and we had a nice episode on this, sort of, uh, the I think maybe the first episode where I was like, I'm going to go off on a grand theory episode. Um, <laughs> the theory that racism I, I, is just I, good I, family. The, the, the theory was that all right. of the world's it's, it's, worst it's political your... ideologies are family yeah. values taken uh, to yeah. politics so in the as, wrong way. As, as, uh, and, I, and I got to use the great Jonah Goldberg phrase, mixing your Gemeinschaft with your Gefeldschaft or something, your macrocosm with your microcosm. Yes, exactly. And uh, a way to find that within the idea, you know, it's too late. That's an easy idea for people who've kind of grown up non-racialist. Um, so maybe once or, you know, maybe a few times in your life, you kind of rooted for one race over another. Um, but for the most part, that's, that, that's not how your social programming worked. Uh, but you you also grew up in a family. And so you've got that sense of shared pride, shared shame, shared collaborative efforts, a lot of irrational stuff, a lot of ritual, um, a lot of, uh, fetching and oh my god did you hear what dad did or mom saying this now but also a lot of like love and it's like the more you're fighting the more you love each other it's a whole story with the family you know this is what most plays and books are about the family yeah 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 you can't you can never have enough but from the first gefilte yeah, you see what the audience tonight. can't see is that i'm making stereotypical uh italian hand gestures with yeah Yes, <laughs> my family and everything for my family. Okay, you know, so if you if you've grown up a little bit like that, you know, not super Italian or just a little bit like that, you know how different that is to how you think about the race that people tell you you belong to, um, and you can see how you how some people make the mistake of treating the race they belong to like a family. Like, oh wow, someone the same like someone in my family did something cool. I'm going to brag about that on Facebook. Oh, someone the same race as me made a billion dollars. I'm going to brag about that. Be like, I'm so glad we're the same race. This person showing me that people in my race can. Like, that's very, very silly mistake to make. But you can see how people could make that mistake. If you start out from the position that it's a mistake. But if you don't start out from that position, how can you point it out? Well, I think this is a way to point it out. Which is to say, if you start out with the idea that races are... You know, they're bands of brothers and they and they need to work together and things are better when they're together. Um and and that it's it's sort of like a naive individualism or kind of a selfishness. Or since you brought up Italian, you know, this is this is why the Italians went so kaput, you know, 
because they made it all about family. Like who then the families are fighting with the other families, the mafiosa. No, you need a nation state. You need to be like the German. You need like one nation state where we're all the same race in the nation and we fight together. You need to not be stupid like the Germans and go genocide Jews and Slavs and uh, so on because that makes everyone very angry with you. But if you like clever and you like the Germans, then it's going to be the best. There are a lot of people who think like that. So what do you do with people who think like that? Well, I think you point them to what's going on in the Donbass and you point them past the one version of the story and the other version of the story. You try and point them to both versions of the story, at least in terms of how a lot of um, intellectuals are, are trying to cash it out um, in those respective areas. You say, look, on the one side, you've got these lawmakers in Ukraine saying, you know, it's really important to figure out that we're a Ukrainian state and that we are a freedom-loving people. Our bloodline defines that. And those Russians, they all love a Tsar and they're a, you know, they're, they're a sadomasochistic kind of depressive uh, people who, who, who really like to be bullied and commanded around. We're not like that because it's just not in our blood. Um, and so we need to, you know, we need to keep separate from them. And then you've got the Russian side saying, look, guys, we're literally all one big happy family. But you know who's not in our family? The Germans. And you know how you can tell? Because they killed lots of you and lots of us for the same reason. Because we didn't belong to their family. Now, you might think that they're not going to do that again. But that's been thought before. And the guys <laughs> who thought that before were wrong. So let's not make that same mistake. So you've got no, two let's, competing let's... race stories. It's almost, it's almost as if it's too funny to be true. <laughs> but this is Let, this is the nature of humanity. We are still no, I think, I think, pulling I think ourselves to, out of the ooze. And I think uh, we need to assure the uh, the, 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 the the Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians that the uh, the sites of, of, of the German state are now far, far away from Eastern Europe. They're much more focused on messing up uh, economic development in the in the third world. <laughs> I don't know. On this version of the story, firstly, you notice that the Germans are shooting themselves in the foot by decommissioning nukes and then refusing to buy gas. But more importantly, that Germany, if you're going by bloodlines, you know, and this is what these people do. The Germans resettled pretty hard in America. And does Washington, D.C. not have its sights on uh, expansion? <laughs> Is Washington, D.C. prepared to spill Russian Rus blood, whether it's Malaruski, Bieloruski, Velikiruski? Uh, very much. This is what uh, the only thing CNN can talk about is, uh, uh, is, 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 is their sights are literally, their cameras are pointed in their direction, waiting for the war to play out. I think, I think you're, if any, Bela, I don't think any Belarusians are listening to this. Uh, if they were, they would, see, <laughs> they would see the Russian army march past out the window and uh, they would know that the, that the American satellites are looking down on them. Uh, and, <laughs> and the yeah, idea you know, that there are, there are no ambitions to uh, expand many... into and impinge uh, uh, on, on this race blood story. I mean, there really are. And I and I think I think part of what's ironic about this conversation is that the the the, the liberal the, those who propose liberal hegemony, those who those who are you know Nicholas for example is uh, <laughs> yeah well, it's like, like at me at me please 
That's a, sorry, that's a Twitter thing. <laughs> it, but but it's not just you. Like people who are for NATO expanding, for Ukraine joining NATO, Estonia joining NATO, and so on. Like, unfortunately, I never hear the argument. The reason you should join NATO is precisely because you should be joining a a, a, a community of states where this bloodline stuff doesn't count for nothing, where that's stupid, where that's kind of rejected. And the reason that's not being said is because it's not how the leaders think, and I don't think it's how most supporters of NATO think. In fact, most supporters of NATO are making the same mistake as Woodrow Wilson did 100 years ago, which is to think the way you solve global conflict is by finding the right level of race politics, that if it's too large or too small, it becomes unworkable. But if you can find the right size of race to, to match with, with government, so that every government kind of gets its own race, at least in some places, then you're onto a winning formula to tackle the really big countries uh, and make sure that they don't do too much mischief. I, I, I feel like we're in a very Woodrow Wilson um, moment in terms of, of, of yeah, well, NATO's misapprehension well, think, of the story and its support of neo-Nazis in Ukraine and, 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 and Ukraine in general. Yeah, uh, so I think, uh, I think part of the reason for Woodrow Wilson's endurance is the fact that he's never really been properly taken apart until the Wokistas decided to start going after him for being a racist. Um, but like, you know, in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they sort of got him, they got the, they got the right thing that was wrong about him and that, that, you know, he was a racist, but they just don't explain it properly as to why that was the wrong thing about him. Right. They say uh, you're a racist because you thought one race was better than another, where, which is true. But he's also a racist in the sense that he thinks one race, one state. He was, he, he thought that's a good idea. Right. That's a yeah. simpler, that's a much more dangerous idea, actually. Yeah. In the sense well, that more people have been killed. I mean, people bring this idea up all the time when it comes to uh, to Africa, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, the reason that Africa is in a mess is because it has too many tribes together in one nation state. And it's like, uh, I don't know about that one. I mean, people do definitely cluster around ethnicity, but I would argue that that's probably because they lack... Uh, a, a, a strong state like states in a lot of ways actually kind of create ethnicity because as you know we say race is a social construct uh yeah. i i seem to 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 remember and i and this may be wrong because i don't know much about tanzania but that tanzania has had less ethnic division partly because it had a sort of centralizing socialist state in the 60s that said nope we are all going to speak swahili and then basically mashed everyone together in a very deliberate process uh yeah i mean this is kwame anthony appear's analysis of of ghana and he's got some good sense there because his dad was kwame Nkrumah's right hand man and all that was that uh when ghana was first unified uh people were very enthusiastic about being Ghanaians. although the ashanti are like one of the most historied kingdoms in africa and yeah. very slaveholding e and so I had lots of neighbors with lots of reasons to have grievance and so on. Um, but the, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, mad, the, the mad top of this thing sort of blew up when Nkrumah then decided to become a pan-Africanist or, or revealed that he was a super pan-Africanist and decided to make that the foremost issue of his, of his later presidency. And then he died. And that was a great relief. Uh, this is not Appy's analysis. This is Addison Sparks's analysis. Uh, he sort of spoke to a bunch of Ghanaians who were like, yes, it's what a relief that Nkrumah died. 
Uh, and not just Ghanaians, by the way, a lot of other people in the AU who'd been saying we are also pan-Africanists, which is relevant because Ramaphosa has been describing himself as pan-Africanists. Um, but the point is, after that, Ghanaians found it very easy to think of themselves as Ghanaians just because it was like a new thing and it kind of made sense, like we're all paying tax into the same part. And like, oh, yeah, there was, there was movement the behind it at the time. Yeah. There was a lot of movement behind it at the time. And it's only and it's when sort of Ghana working. failed. And it wasn't working very well, exactly. Yeah. That people then were like, you know what? Well. This the reason that Ghana is failing is because the Ashanti over there are really, really being unpleasant and taking all the jobs, and actually those jobs belong to us. <laughs> and so this is why I, I mean, this is why the Institute of Race Relations works the way it does, I think, which is that it's pretty clear through history what makes race relations improve. In fact, what makes them become less salient? What makes these things dissolve into sort of stories that people might tell and disagree about now and then, but like that really not, don't get yeah. in the way of their lives is when you're succeeding at other stuff. And in yes. particular, succeeding through have, background conditions right. of the rule of law and a relatively yeah. limited Strong liberal institutions, healthy economy, et cetera, et cetera. Then and, it's fine. Right. Then, yeah, because then... then, then all of this then, stuff becomes then it, nerdy. Then when Nicholas yeah. is like, I don't know if the Cossacks came from here or from there, and Gabriel's like, I don't know if they came from here or from there, people who lean in and listen to that are not looking for a reason to stab someone in the eyeball. <laughs> they're sort of, they're passing the time and they're wondering right. about how things used to be. That's yeah. that's yeah. when that's when it's working. To, so to... to, to to get it working, you need to get this, you know, to get the race relations better. Turns out it's very easy to take if things start going badly and you'd like to become famous, just come out as a hardcore racist. Uh, because lots of people will get behind you. And then it's yeah, very well, hard to do the other thing. But if you can turn around the ship, then because no clumping down clumping down into a tribe, whatever that tribe is, uh, well, the race is a very easy one because it makes sense in the like sort of kinship way our brains are built. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it's how we're hardwired. When things are going bad, it's like retreat, retreat to the tribe, put out the spears, and wait for the harsh weathers to blow over. Because you, you think that your tribe being sort of related to you will probably be nicer to you than people who aren't. <laughs> and that Maybe. makes sense when you're a hunter-gatherer on the steppes of 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 of, uh, of Eurasia or or on the savannas of Africa, but when you're living in a giant city of millions of people, it's really not that useful. <laughs> yeah, you can also see this anytime people go to prison. And I mean, I quite like the idea. I went to prison a few times, uh, sort of uh, on community service. Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> the story's about to get good. <laughs> like, like I've been arrested, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, no, but that was it, what the, that, that was the Leocorp prison project or something, wasn't it? Yes. Because I remember our school used to have, yeah. We used to go read and like talk about homework and life. And, you know, like you'd, the theory was you go there and help, help uh, juvenile uh, detainees who study. Yeah, something. study. And, and some of them are not juvenile, they're adults, but they've decided to finish their high school. Right. So they're like in they their early it. 20s. Yeah. And Lord knows whether it is good for anything. I don't. Uh, but it, it, it seemed 
it seemed i don't know i i did i kind of i hated the experience when we left and 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 i saw chaps pat each other on the back because i because i because i hoped that it was good but it was very easy to think that it was kind of fun but not actually helpful Mm. um i don't know but uh anyway we definitely didn't go nearly often enough i think to to deserve any to make a real difference yeah credit yeah but we we did go often enough to kind of get some insight into how dudes describe prison life uh you know on the on the third or fourth time you're chatting with a dude for, for several hours you i you you i felt like i was getting past the the you know him trying to tell me what i wanted to hear um right and it 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 is amazing the diversity and for example belonging to the group that volunteers to go back to school like i don't but that is a gang that becomes a gang no right it's the people it's it's the people who, <laughs> who who have some sort of hope for the future right as opposed to the ones who are like what's the point yeah. but so they but so but 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 it's not like 50 50 you know there's lots and lots of different gangs and groups and and, and ways yeah. that people coalesce and then and and he's, you know some of the guys are like you know and for a while this seemed like a sideshow and then you know after that guy you know after a couple of fights and this isn't that it's like no this is this turns out to be my main gang like <laughs> school gang I mean, represent i'm a school gang <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's 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 i think what we should end on end on here which is that if you're gonna belong to a gang in prison belong to the school gang dude i totally that's absolutely my recommendation for the week like <laughs> belong to this not the school gang where you fight for or against one version of history but where you like are very very fight to try and figure out which is the right one okay we can't end there I'm gonna end. I if we if we, we had another topic that we were gonna mention, I will just say it for anyone who's still listening. Um, that if you haven't seen the story about Sol Ramaphosa, um, saying that he would cover up for in part the Kozadana Lamini Zuma campaign in 2017, and in part for uh just general abuse of the of taxpayers money you should check out the story the audio uh the the leaked audio you know i'm i'm sure we will learn more about its veracity so far it's been taken very uh, seriously uh, i must uh, say by... cyril cyril keeps falling for leaked audio i mean this has happened ever since he told that gogo that the boys were going to take away her house or whatever like <laughs> she said, yeah, really he said should... in 2014, they're going to bring back apartheid. Also, he said in in like 1992, they're gonna they're gonna we're gonna boil the whiteies like frogs. That was, I wish yeah. he would have. Like the dude, the dude really needs to to be careful about re- recording devices because he's clearly not very good at <laughs> being delicate. At, at being delicate. <laughs> I mean, I think look from 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 the transcriptions. I haven't listened to the audio. I've read sort of extended quotations. Um, uh, I think it is relatively delicately phrased, uh, but it's pretty, look, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, sweet. If you think, 
from inside an ANC perspective, if you think the following, which is so easy to do, especially for a childhood lover of the ANC like me. I really want this party to survive. This party is the Liberation Party. It is the only party occupied by people who, who truly fought for the liberation of South Africa, who truly put everything on the line. Of course, there were allies and there were assistants, but this was the vanguard of freedom. And those people who fought for it, some of them have passed away. Ahmed Kathrada, Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, or Tambo. But Joe Slovo, let's not get too complicated. But <laughs> many of them are still alive. Many of us are still alive. And it is our duty to hold on to power because we and only we really know how to keep this country in hand uh, and keep it going forward. And he has this awkward problem where corruption has become very endemic. And so government finances, firstly, the state security agency was completely corrupted by Arthur Frazier and Jacob Zuma. It was being run literally at a COO, chief operations level by someone who was supposed to be in jail, but was still collecting a salary outside of jail as the chief operating officer of the security wow. agency. It's amazing. It's good work if you can get it. There was a slush fund of hundreds of millions of rands at least being used to buy cars and uh, prostitutes and all the good things in life, maybe billions of rands and a lot of that money in that slush fund. And, you know, by the way, every security agency in the world has a slush fund and that really is true. So it is a smart place to go rather than the money going to the prostitutes and the cars for Arthur Frazier's cronies. Someone decided to use some of that money on busing in supporters to this campaign rally event or buying t-shirts for that or buying dinner for the other in order to have a contest about who should take over the ANC after the nightmare of Jacob Zuma. Surely that is a better way to spend the money. And surely you and I can understand that is a much better way to spend the money. But if it gets out to the public, those irritating little nitpickers at the Democratic Alliance and in all of the media houses are going to get so excited that government taxpayer <laughs> money has been used once again, not the way it was supposed to be used. And this time it is used in the contest between CR17 and NDZ. It is going to distract us from our revolutionary task of uplifting poor black people by giving jobs to rich black people. It's <laughs> complete distraction and we cannot allow it. We must stop this immediately. And so I nobly will allow all the heat to fall on me. He says, Ramaphosa says, I will fall on my sword, which is hilarious. That's not what he means. Uh, he says, uh, you know, let, let them just focus on the CR17 side. Uh, they mustn't look at the NDZ side. Uh, I won't politicize this. Um, and let them rather think that it came from dodgy business people uh, than that it came from the party. Ah, uh, what a hero. <laughs> what a wonderful hero we have. Uh, I must say, as a kind of, you know, perhaps saying more about that my own twisted soul, the continuous and slow tarnishing of St. Cyril's reputation is does delight me. Oh, dude, it, look, I get I get both Schadenfreude and actual empathy tragedy out of it because I I was once a, a believer. 
But um, I think I think it affirms a talking point that I have I have tried to put out there a lot, and that I was actually writing up, and then I sort of abandoned it this week just before the footage came out, which made me feel stupid. I should have published thing last week, and and then been vindicated. No, then you would have looked like a genius. Well, I am a genius because I said it on the Daily Friend show, so it's uh, it's on public which record. Should, which I don't know. I doubt there's like I think the number of people who listen to the two crickets and don't listen to the daily French show is very small. Uh, but if you are one of those people, listen to the daily French show. Yeah, it's very good. I agree. And you will hear me saying, Sora Ramaphosa is the head of the RET faction. This is not mm, controversial. Beautiful. Radical economic transformation is a policy position that was established and elaborated under Thabo and Becky that was then fought about under J uh, uh, Jacob Zuma and then was then brought to fruition under Sora Ramaphosa. Its key pillars were expropriation without compensation, nationalizing the healthcare service, uh, prescribing assets to deal with whatever fallout there might be, uh, nationalizing the Reserve Bank. And uh, uh, Sora Ramaphosa has not managed to achieve any of these but he has said categorically that nationalizing the Reserve Bank is something that he wants to do. He's just not ready for it yet. Uh, he came onto the ticket with uh, EWC being his signature policy, something that he was pushing. The national health insurance move is happening. Uh, uh, he has said repeatedly that the excellent performance of government healthcare under the coronavirus. And <laughs> <laughs> and he manages to say this without smiling, which is why I think we should respect him, because that is yeah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, he does right. laugh like a real ass a lot no, of the time. I, I, I will say though that, like, maybe this is just because I like things that are that are kind of like round, but I think that he has like a really lovable face. Truly, truly, truly. Like it's just. He he just I just I just ever he just doesn't look you know Zuma Zuma kind of Zuma could vacillate between looking sort of fun and looking really creepy, but Cyril always just looks a bit kind of fun. Yeah, he looks cuddly. <laughs> he looks pretty cuddly. Anyway, he did. He's the editor. He's the if if ret has anything to do with policy, let me tell you the most exciting thing about it. In 2017, South Africa's largest ever, I'm talking about the opposition, not our survey, the largest ever survey in South Africa to do with politics. Unfortunately, we got pipped. We do the best because we do it regularly, but one off uh, commissioned by ENCA asked the question of the ANC base. Would you like radical economic transformation? Would you like more of the same or would you like more business friendly solutions? coming out of the Nasrik 2017 conference. Coming in at stone cold last with about 18.5% approval was radical economic transformation. Coming in at first place was more business-friendly solutions. Coming in <laughs> at second place was more of the same. If you line up those results with the preference for Suro Ramaphosa, Versus the preference for Nkosazana Dlaminizuma. It was exactly the same. A 5 to 1 preference for Ramaphosa over Dlaminizuma. And every reason in the world to believe that the reason people preferred Ramaphosa over Dlaminizuma was that he looked like he would oppose radical economic transformation. In that sense, he is the most successful leader of radical economic transformation 
the ANC has ever had. Nelson Mandela actually opposed radical economic transformation. Thabo Mbeki pontificated so much that he ended up opposing radical economic transformation. Jacob Zuma fumbled his way into some radical economic transformation and then it got very unpopular and then Ramaphosa came in seeming to be an opponent of it even while and where after. I mean, at the time, you, I, I was fooled. I, I thought I liked him because I thought he would oppose radical economic transformation. But for the last four years, he's done nothing but push it. And he's pulled off the trick of getting a whole faction to be named the radical economic transformation faction that he's not in charge of. Oh, Even though he is literally signing and swearing to all of the radical economic transformation positions and even though he's now on tape if the if the tape is accurate saying you know look the last thing we need is for people to to start asking hard questions about the party because what we really have to do is some radical economic transformation <laughs> all right and on that note let us call it uh recommendations I have one, uh, a YouTube channel called Anton Petrov. And this dude just talks about science discoveries. He reads scientific papers and then he just talks about what they found. And he's got videos basically every single day, literally. And he mostly talks about stuff going on in space. You know, oh, scientists discovered like a weird new star. Scientists discovered a weird, uh, you know, wave coming out of space. Uh, they discovered a strange bacteria in this part of the ocean. And uh, I think that it's the kind of content where if you watch too much of it at once, you're probably going to be a bit fatigued because it can be a bit much. But if you're interested in that stuff, it's really, really good. So that's Anton Petrov. Uh, I'll, I will put it in the description, which I forgot to do last time. Gabriel, your recommendation. Uh, I recommend um, the Super Bowl of economics, as it's been dubbed by <laughs> Super Mario's. Yeah, no, there's there's no such thing, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I I was fortunate to get onto this pretty early last year. Facebook just flashed it at me because I'm friends with Princeton University on Facebook. Um, the first debate was held last year around this time between Nobel prize-winning uh, New York Times columnist, Princeton professor Paul Krugman, the great behavioral economist uh, who really has some excellent insights um, and sometimes lets his uh, linguistic acumen get ahead of his critical thinking, particularly <laughs> when That's putting it mildly. his linguistic acumen is in service to his uh, his sort of working class sentiment, um, he 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 sometimes gets sort of quite pro pro the already rich and anti poor in the name of being uh, super super left. Um, but I think you know I I suppose that's a fair fair uh, you know I suppose you could say that about a lot of people. <laughs> 
Anyway, I, I really have got some serious complaints about Krugman. I won't get into that. I think that he's an amazingly intelligent guy. I think that he's the smartest guy um, on the left. And on the other side is Larry Summers, was president of Harvard, uh, was basically removed because, um, well, uh, Let's not get into that. He has he has recuperated his reputation and uh, enjoys the respect of many as a proper center center left dude. Uh, and my joke about American politics for the last uh, seven eight years has been there is no center left. Um, the thought there being in part that. For centrists to thrive, especially radical centrists, it's it's better off if you've got uh, center left and center right guys uh, thriving as well. Um, their debate last year was about inflation, and Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate, said that it's transitory; that the trillions of dollars that had been invented by the American government. We're not really going to cause much of an inflation. That the money was helicoptered properly. That the marginal propensity to spend that money, meaning the rate at which people were saving it versus spending it, uh, would result in a kind of slow drip, like in a hospital, uh, into the body of the economy uh, at such a rate that prices would, you know, maybe there'd be a little surge, but that it wouldn't, it wouldn't last much more than a quarter or two, and that. Um, and that uh, the 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 thought that uh, inventing all of these uh, thousands of dollars that were being given to everyone um, would ultimately tax people further down the line, even if it's not being paid for by taxes, because it's going to create an inflation, uh, was a was a sort of old fashioned monetarist um, Tom Milton Friedman kind of position. Uh, and and Larry Summers made the argument that uh, what's going to happen is what actually ended up happening. Uh, so that was last year. It was a fascinating discussion. I thought it was the most intelligent discussion about the inflation prospects that there were. Um, they then had round two because that because that started out as just a little Princeton economics uh, disc, uh, sort of working seminar thing that was just being put on in their Facebook and like fifty people watched it. Uh, but then it kind of went viral. So they had another one this year again. And Paul Krugman was pretty cringy and apologetic. And Larry Summers was very uh, magnanimous, as he often is. <laughs> Emphasize the points of agreement. Um, but he's also quite harsh. He can't help himself. And so you see two very diverging views about what's coming ahead, which I think is very interesting. And I say that my sort of final note will be that I I will I will follow Krugman in one regard, which is that I find myself scratching my head very hard, and I think this uh, this this lecture I've just described or this debate that I've just described is a good place to start thinking about it. But a lot of people shared a similar position to me, which is that Bitcoin, um, if it's good for anything, uh, you know, it's clearly not particularly useful for transactions. Um, at a commercial level, it might be good for backing up transactions, but at the but, but at the moment, but 
clearing houses behind credit card companies are currently still better at Bitcoin than that. So if it's good for anything, it's good as a hedge against the dollar, which means it's a hedge against inflation, which means if inflation goes up, Bitcoin. If the dollar gets weaker, Bitcoin should get stronger. Um, the opposite has happened. As inflation outlooks on the US dollar have uh, cemented uh, into a pretty high inflation zone for the coming period, Bitcoin's value has uh, not quite halved, but just about uh, dropped by, by, by quite a serious amount from a peak to above where it was, I don't know, uh, a year plus ago. But it's uh, that hedge story is, I'm, I, I'm not saying it's dispelled, but it's under an interesting kind of stress. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we've done pretty well not to talk about Bitcoin too much on this podcast because it's a kind of rabbit hole that somehow when people start talking about it, they never stop talking about it. But also with the, I mean, you know, one of us is perhaps more, um, or let me put this way, one of us is less laconic than the other. Uh, and that problem would only be vastly inflated if you talked about Bitcoin, because I have no intelligent opinions on Bitcoin whatsoever. I barely understand how it works. <laughs> so we did talk about the economics of it. Neither do any of the guys are buying it. <laughs> it's not. It's really not Look, I know that I know that there's actually not a lot of people who understand Bitcoin, but I'm very firmly in that camp. And so <laughs> <laughs> the conversation would be very like, yeah, so I think this. I don't know, Nick, do you agree with me? I uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Look, and and I, I I don't want to give anyone the misapprehension that this is that this, this is a debate about Bitcoin. This is a debate about uh, U.S. dollar inflation. Um, recapping on on what was said last year between these two brilliant guys who 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 by the way the, the Princeton guys picked up on it because uh, Krugman and and Summers ended up having a go at each other in the New York Times um, in writing, and so they thought, well, maybe it'll be more interesting That's if you so if much more words on Twitter. That's and it really, there. it really was. I mean, if you want to go back and watch the one from last year, um, it's probably a good idea. A little bit. I mean, I don't want to. It sounds too cruel to say it because Krugman really was pretty, pretty, not just wrong in what he predicted. I think quite wrong in how he thought about it. In some ways, although in some ways, quite right about how he thought about it. Uh, anyway, I, I I think that it's nice sometimes to 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 touch on that kind of stuff and what i find very pleasant is that if you're watching something on youtube uh and there's a term that they throw in i looked up si curve uh, larry summers finished the thing by saying he's one of his problems is that he's a bit si curve hesitant or skeptical it's like i don't know what that means actually and then i googled it and then i was like oh that's what it means pretty simple you know so you can pause and, and google uh if you feel like that kind of listening experience, I recommend that debate. Cool. So where can we find it again? On YouTube. Uh, if you YouTube Summers Krugman Princeton, I'm sure it'll be the first thing up, but we will also put the link. Yeah, presumably I'll go, I'll in go the look at the link. Okay. And with that, uh, wherever you are, whoever you are, uh, whatever you're doing, keep the flow of liberty flying. Oh, yeah. Grr, grr.